0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for bringing us to this place to worship you and to hear what you have to say. So Lord, it is my prayer this morning that you would speak, that you would use the words that I have to say to speak to the people that are here, that you would open up ears, Lord, and that you would provide your grace and your encouragement to all of us here that are here this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you, Many of you have heard of J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was this creative and gifted author. You may be aware of his works. He wrote The Hobbit and he wrote Lord of the Rings. Now, I know many of you are aware of those two books and many of Tolkien's other works. He was a a gifted writer of, of high fantasy. Now, some of you may have looked at the title for this morning's sermon and thought that it was a typo. And others of you may have looked at the title for this morning's sermon and thought, maybe I should dress up like Frodo or Gandalf. Now, I'm glad none of you dressed up like Frodo or Gandalf. They are characters in the Lord of the Rings, and I think I'm actually going to get some bonus points this morning from Jim, because Jim is crazy about the Lord of the Rings. Me, not so much. But the illustration works. So... Tolkien was so creative that not only did he write books, he created words. Tolkien made up his own words. And one of the words he was most proud of was a word that he said got to the heart of what made a truly great story. What makes a truly great story, Tolkien makes up a word and he calls it a eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe, a Good catastrophe. And Tolkien meant by this that it is a change or a great turning in a story that brings great joy that leads people to joyous tears. It's a eucatastrophe, a great, great change in a story. It's a positive reversal of fortune. It's a eucatastrophe. This morning, we're concluding our study in the book of Esther, and in the last three chapters of the book of Esther, chapter 8, 9, and 10, we come to a eucatastrophe, a turning point in the story that brings great joy and leads us towards tears of happiness. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, it's found on page 400 in the Bible that the church provides, if you'd like to follow along in that Bible. And here we're going to see a eucatastrophe. Now it takes a while for us to get there, but we're going to see this great positive reversal that happens. Now remember where we're at in the stories. The people of Israel are exiled in the land of Persia. King Xerxes, he's the king of Persia, and he's gotten rid of his old queen, and he conducted a nationwide beauty contest, and he finds Esther. Esther is a Jewish woman who now becomes the queen of Persia. Her uncle is a man by the name of Mordecai, and Mordecai is also Jewish. And Mordecai, because Esther is now queen, begins hanging around at the palace more, and while he's at the palace one day, he hears of a plot to assassinate King Xerxes, So he reveals the plot and ends up saving Xerxes' life, and and Mordecai is recognized for this act of goodness. But at this point, everything seems to be going really well for Esther and Mordecai, but then there's a new character that's introduced into the story, Haman. We learn of this new character, Haman, who's introduced because he's promoted to be the second in charge of all of Persia. And we think to ourselves, well, why wasn't that Mordecai? That, that should have been Mordecai, not Haman. But, but Haman is introduced. And we learn that Haman was an evil man. And that he was a player in this battle between good and evil. Haman went to King Xerxes and he deceives King Xerxes into signing a law to have Mordecai and all the Jews killed. And then last week, at the end of chapter 7, we learned that Haman... Because of Esther's pleading and revelation that he was evil, Haman is led out of the king's presence with his head covered and he's executed on a 75 foot pole that he had built for Mordecai. So, everything seems to be going really well for Esther and Mordecai, right? Well, initially, yes. Look at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. That same day, what day? The day that Haman was executed, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Things are looking up for Esther and Mordecai. Haman is gone. Xerxes has given Haman's estate to Esther, and the king gave Mordecai his signet ring. That means that Mordecai is now number two. He's the number two person in all of Persia. He now holds all the power that Haman once had. Esther and Mordecai are seemingly in a really good place. But then there's a problem. There's a very real problem a big problem. And to say it's a big problem is an understatement. Look at verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Haman is dead, but his plan is not. The law to kill all the Jews in the land of Persia, we read here, is still in effect. Queen Esther is here begging the king to revoke the law. But in Persia, a law signed by the king is irrevocable. This is a problem for Esther. It's a problem for Mordecai. And it's a problem for all of the Jews in Persia. The order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews in Persia is still in effect. Think of the Jews. Think of these people. Think of Mordecai. Think of Esther. Can you imagine what they're going through here? The fear? The anxiety? The uncertainty of their future? Think about the hurt the pain, the confusion that they must be experiencing here. Look at what it says. Esther again pleaded with the king. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. Do you ever feel that way? Like the problem Is so overwhelming and never seems to go away? Of course, you do. You know what this feels like. You know what it feels like to be anxious, fearful, uncertain, to be full of hurt and pain and confusion. All of us know this feeling. And this morning, there are many of you in this room that are facing a problem just like that. A problem that brings hurt and pain and confusion. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're hanging on by a threat. There's so much turmoil in your marriage that you don't see how the how the marriage is going to survive. Maybe you're here this morning and you're single and you wish you were married because sometimes you feel so alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been trying to have a child for years with no success. Maybe you're here this morning and you are without a job And you feel that your prospects are dim. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a child or a grandchild who has walked away from the Lord and is making harmful choices. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been diagnosed with a serious disease, or maybe it's a friend that's been diagnosed with a serious disease. Maybe you started school last week or you're starting this week and you really don't have any friends yet and you're not sure how you're going to make it through school. Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing an addiction. Maybe you're here this morning and you are just so full of anxiety and fear that you feel paralyzed. Those are just a few of the problems that are represented in this room this morning. And there are many more. We know what it's like to face the pain, the hurt, And the confusion. So what I would like you to do is I would like you to keep in mind the problem that you are facing this morning. I don't know the problem you're facing. But you know the problem you're facing. And I would like you to keep your problem in your mind this morning as we go through these verses in Esther. And I'd like you to see, I'd like you to watch I'd like you to listen to how Esther and Mordecai deal with their problem. And I would like you to listen to what God has to say to you this morning. So first, the first thing we see is that Esther makes a request. Esther makes a request. Now this is interesting to me. I look at this and I think to myself, Esther and Mordecai could have run away from the problem. Esther, she's been given Haman's whole estate. Mordecai, he's been given Haman's signet ring. He is now the second in all of Persia. To me, it seems like Esther and Mordecai could have gotten away from the problem. I'm sure Esther has a cottage somewhere that she could go to. But Esther doesn't avoid the problem. Esther recognizes that the problem is really her problem, and she faces the problem head on. She doesn't pretend that the problem doesn't exist. She doesn't pretend like everything is good with her and everything in her world is just perfect. She recognizes that there is a problem. She faces it, and then she makes a request. That's verse 3 look what it says. She begs the king to put an end to the evil plan. She falls on her knees, weeping and wailing, begging the king to put an end to the evil plan. This past week, this reminded me of a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus tells a parable in response to the disciples asking him, how should they pray? Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This is exactly what Esther is doing as she pleads before the king. She is approaching the king with shameless audacity. She weeps and cries out and pleads with the king to reverse Haman's evil plan. That is exactly what you and I should be doing When we come to our problems, we should plead before our King. We should approach God, our Heavenly Father, with shameless audacity and ask Him to move and change and answer in our situations. So if you are struggling in your marriage, go to God the Father with shameless audacity and pray that He will restore your marriage. If you are sick or if a friend of yours is sick, go before God the Father with shameless audacity and plead for healing. If your child is making poor choices, go before God the Father with shameless audacity and plead for his rescue. If you do not have a job or you are in a bad financial situation, go before God the Father with shameless audacity and plead for provision. Think about this. You are not going to an evil, earthly king. You are not even going to your earthly neighbor. You are going to your heavenly Father who loves and cares for you deeply, who wants the best for you, who desires to provide for your every need. That's why Jesus continues. Look at how he continues in Luke chapter 11. Look at what he says. Which of of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When you ask your heavenly Father, when you approach him with shameless audacity, he is not going to give you a snake. He is not going to give you a scorpion. Your heavenly Father loves you. He cares for you. And he promises to meet your every need. I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what problem you are experiencing, what problem you are facing this morning, but your heavenly Father does. And Jesus, his son, instructs us to go with shameless audacity before God the Father and ask. First, make the request. Make the request. Second, there is a reversal. Second, there is a reversal. Look at Esther has pleaded before the king. The king then assures Esther that she and Mordecai are now in a position to counteract the law that Haman has enacted. Look at verse 8. This is the king's instruction. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. The king's first law what he, the king's first law cannot be revoked, but Esther and Mordecai now are to write a new law that will counteract the first law. So the scribes are summoned and they write a new law. The new law is explained beginning in verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all of the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Now, I look at that, I listen to that, I read that, and I think to myself, ouch, this seems to be a harsh law as well. Now the Jews can destroy, kill, and annihilate people? At first glance, this seems to be, at the very least, a bit of moral ambiguity. Here, the good guys, are the good guys turning into the bad guys and now acting just like the bad guys? I don't think so. Something different is happening here, and it's actually quite a bit different. First, if you are listening carefully, you notice that Mordecai's new edict is modeled very much after Haman's first one. Every element of the first law finds its counterpart in the second. It's not so much that Mordecai wants to destroy, kill, and annihilate. He just wants to counteract the first one. Every detail that Mordecai identifies is meant to restore balance. And remember, Esther and Mordecai first went to the king asking him to reverse Haman's edict. If that had happened, there would have been no need for violence. Now here, all they're asking for, all they want with this law is a fair fight. But there are some differences between the two laws as well. In contrasting chapter 8, verse 11, with chapter 3, verse 13, we see that Mordecai's law essentially gives, listen to this, essentially gives permission to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Whereas Haman's law in chapter 3, verse 13, orders people to destroy, kill, and annihilate and plunder kill all the Jews, men, women, children, defenseless people. Mordecai's law is framed in terms of self-defense. Look at verse 11. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children. You see that? Self defense with permission to kill armed men and protect themselves and their women and children. We're meant to see here that Mordecai's law is a blow by blow undoing of Haman's law. A blow by blow undoing. A reversal. A great reversal. What should we call this? Come on, Tolkien fans. What should we call this? Yes. A catastrophe. This is a good catastrophe. It is an insertion. It's a change in the story. It turns the trajectory of the story around, and it brings good news to Esther, to Mordecai, to the Jewish people. It brings joy to the situation because now they are experiencing a positive, great reversal. It is a huge reversal of fortune. Think about what is going on here in this story. Esther is a simple Jewish girl who's made the queen of Persia only to end up being sentenced to death. Mordecai, a good, trustworthy man, at one point favored by the king, finds himself in sackcloth and ashes, himself sentenced to death. The Jewish people are not only in exile, now the Jewish people are sentenced to death. But that is not the end of the story. Because it is a story of rags to riches, of death to life, of mourning, to a place of glory. You see the trajectory of this story? You see what is happening? Mordecai was once sentenced to death. Now he is the second in all of Persia. Esther, queen, she herself sentenced to death, now at a place of glory. The people of Israel, once sentenced to death, now are given life. It is a catastrophe, a good, good catastrophe. It's the trajectory of the story, and it is the trajectory of the story that we see over and over again in Scripture. Esther and Mordecai are just names of two people that were righteous sufferers that God ends up rewarding in the end. There are character, there's character after character in God's Word where people are rewarded in the end. I think about I think about Hannah. Hannah's this Old Testament character. She's a woman who is unable to bear a child, and all she wants in life is a child. The hurt, the pain, the sorrow, the confusion. Why won't God give me a child? She cries out to the Lord. She's in so much pain, she's in so much hurt that she doesn't even eat. And she cries out to the Lord with shameless audacity. She goes before God and says, Please, please give me a child. And God answers. And He provides Samuel. He gives Samuel to Hannah. And look at her thankful response. Look at what she says. Look at what she prays and what she says to God in gratitude. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor from rags to riches, from death to life, from mourning to a place of glory. This is the trajectory of the story. It is the trajectory of the story for Hannah. It is the trajectory of the story for Esther. It is the trajectory of the story for Mordecai. And guess what? It is the trajectory of the story for each one of us in this place this morning. I don't know the problem you face. I don't know what you are going through this morning. I know there is hurt. I know there is pain. I know there is confusion. But the thing I do know this morning is that God is going to give you a catastrophe. He has promised that he is going to change the storyline and he is going to bring joy where there was once sorrow. And he is going to bring happiness where there was once pain. And he is going to bring understanding where there was once confusion. God is going to give you a good catastrophe. A positive reversal of fortune. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he is going to do it. I don't know what he is going to do but he is going to give you a eucatastrophe because that is the trajectory of the story. One of the reasons that we are in the book of Esther is to recognize that problems exist, but God comes in and provides a eucatastrophe in our hurt, in our pain, in our sorrow, in our confusion. God steps in and changes the outcome and provides for us all that we need. I promise you, a catastrophe is coming for you. Esther also reminds us that this is not the greatest catastrophe at all. Esther points us to the greatest catastrophe ever. Look what Tolkien writes about the greatest eucatastrophe ever. What makes this story so great? What makes the eucatastrophe so great? This is what he says. It is because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. The great world, he's referring to heaven. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. And I conclude by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and produces the essential emotion Christian joy. You see the eucatastrophe in the book of Esther is just a foreshadowing of the eucatastrophe that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to this earth. He dies on a cross so that our sins may forgiven, be forgiven. God then intercedes and interjects his power and raises Jesus Christ from the dead in the greatest eucatastrophe of all. And that power that God raises Jesus from the dead with is the power that he gives to you and to me when we believe in Jesus. That means that someday you are going to, yes, you are going to experience the power of Jesus Christ in your life. And it may be here now in the temporal, but I promise you it is for sure in the eternal. God has promised to you and to me in the midst of our problems a eucatastrophe, a good catastrophe, a positive reversal of fortune. And the result is, is that we should be expressing in great joy that Jesus is alive and his power is ours. And no matter what difficulties we face, the future holds for us a catastrophe. which leads us to the last point, leads us to the last point I'd like you to see this morning. If you and I are going to get our very own eucatastrophe, we should be happy. Actually, the word, we should be full of joy. Remember what Tolkien said. The resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe ever and should produce in each one of us as believers in Jesus that essential Christian emotion, joy. In the story of Esther, when Haman's original decree is issued, the law to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. When it was announced, it threw the city into confusion and an uproar. And it caused the Jews to turn in mourning and sadness. But look what happens after the great reversal, beginning in verse 15. Look at When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was time, a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nations became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Notice here in verse 16 and 17 that the fasting Was replaced with feasting. The mourning is replaced with rejoicing. The grief is replaced with gladness. The sorrow is replaced with celebrating. The people who once distanced themselves from the Jews are now joining them. Look what it says. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is an incredible reversal, an incredible change of events. This is the Eucatastrophe. But notice, as great as this celebration was, please notice that it was a celebration not of actual victory, but only the victory to come. The victory promised. The victory anticipated. The law that gave salvation to the Jews was announced, but here it was not yet executed. And there was still joy. Because they knew that the promise meant that it was going to happen. The promise made victory certain. God has made a promise. He has made a promise to each one of you who know him through Jesus Christ. And the promise is that no matter what you are going through, no matter what your problem this morning, no matter what the hurt, the pain, the confusion, that a catastrophe is coming. That you, through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is going to provide to you a catastrophe. I know that the problems of this life are difficult. I know there's hurt. I know there's pain. I know there's confusion but I also want you to think about something. It's in your problem that God can show up. And it's within that problem that God can show up and meet you where you are at and meet you in your very need. If there are no problems... Is there really a need for God to show up? But because of your problems, God can show up. And when he does, you will get to see God's power firsthand. And the people who are around you will get to see God's power firsthand and will recognize that your God is a living and active God and that he meets us in our problems and provides for us the hope of catastrophe. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to close by singing three songs together. I know that there are many problems represented in this room. I look out and I know some of your problems. And they are very real. So as we sing these three songs, I would invite you to come down front with shameless audacity and plead before your Heavenly Father. He is not going to give you a scorpion. He is not going to give you a snake. He is going to provide for your needs. And I know there's somebody here this morning that has never, ever come down front. And I told you at the beginning to listen to what God is saying to you this morning. Maybe He's asking you to come down front with shameless audacity and plead for a resolution to your problem. So if you have a problem, I'd invite you down front. I will also invite you down front if you in gratitude would like to thank God for providing a catastrophe in your life, or thank him for the anticipated catastrophe that is going to come.